Rumors Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter the book, ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailers Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Nailers Natter listeners. Now, we are on our penultimate episode, so 170-something episodes, many of which have been co-hosted with my guest tonight. It's the fabulous Emma Turner. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to see you again. It really is. And it's been too long, hasn't it? It has been too long since we've been together on the podcast. And so many episodes that are right up there in the top end of our ratings, not that we look at that listener, well, occasionally, <laughs> um, have been the ones that Emma has done. And none better than our personal favourite together, which was recorded in my office at work. Not Emma wasn't there, because that would be weird. But <laughs> Emma's recorded with Sir John Jones, who features heavily, heavily listener uh, in the new Nailers Natter book, out pretty much now. Um, you know, available, shameless plug. So yeah, it's great to have you back on. It's going to be a great one. And we're going to be talking about your new book, aren't we? Which we've just been debating off air and I'm going to pronounce correctly, aren't I, Emma? You so, are. So Emma's new book, Simplicitous. Yes. Yes, there we go. Is, oh, my word, listeners. I mean, a lot of you will already have been out and got the book. Some of you might even have had some training around the book from Emma as well. But we're going to delve into and look at this book. But this is just an epic piece of work, isn't it, Emma? It's absolutely superb. And the reviews and the ratings and everything else have been amazing. So congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a joy to write. It's been, it's, I've said to many people, it's my heart on a page. It's my love of primary and my kind of almost quarter of a century in primary in a book uh, and, and kind of an ode to the sec- to that phase in the sector as well. So I'm quite proud of it. And rightly so, rightly so. Right, so listen, obviously most of the, the way that we do things on Nailers Natter has been me asking experts to talk about um, their particular um, experiences or their particular book. Now, never has this been more stark or more evident than the conversation that we're about to have. So when we talk about behaviour, obviously I've been in charge of behaviour um, at various different schools over the years. If we talk about pastoral, I've done pastoral for many years. I've been a head of department in a secondary. I have done lots of other jobs, science teacher, etc, etc. But I've been to primary schools. I've done a little bit of work in primary schools, but I'm afraid to say that my knowledge is lacking in the curriculum design uh, of primary schools. So any questions that I'm asking today, I've basically rephrased a lot of Emma's questions from the end of each chapter and pushing them back at her. But then, and I, there probably won't be a great deal of follow-up either on some of these questions, but hopefully <laughs> the spaces that we leave will encourage you to go out and buy the book listeners, won't they? I love this. <laughs> well, I've just said, to, I've just had, I've just done, I shouldn't probably say this, should I? I've just had Stricker one doing the last episode. Does so he get to... like a special award? Because isn't that his fourth that he's done now? Well, he, he said it's his fifth, but I think it's his fourth. Yeah, but he said it's his fifth. So perhaps he's sneaked on an extra episode somewhere. But I, I've just gone to that point where I, I just don't care now because I think, well, you know, you've seen behind the curtain, it's finishing anyway. So it doesn't really matter, does it now? 
So we're just going to be honest in this one, aren't we? And just say, look, listen, I really don't know what I'm talking about, but hopefully Emma's going to help us out. So let's get into it, Emma, tell me. So tell okay. us about your quarter of a century um, of primary, in the primary classroom and how you've harnessed that experience and channeled it into this masterpiece. Well, I'm a bit annoyed that I actually wrote that it's nearly quarter of a century because I'm still trying to pretend I'm 35 and that really does not add up anymore. Um, but no, I, I wrote the book because I wanted to champion the primary sector because it's unique, it's different, it's not diet secondary or secondary light. It's it's a very, very different approach. And, you know, we take children from the cusp of toddlerhood all the way through to the beginning of adolescence, which is a huge developmental trajectory for children. It's a it's a unique phase of their life and it is different from from a secondary model. And a lot of the information around curriculum, around teaching and learning about leadership was incredibly useful, but it was through a secondary lens, which it has transference into primary, but not direct congruence. And I wanted to sort of really champion the great work that goes on in primary and to illuminate what primary is really and how it is different from secondary and how it's important that it should be different from secondary because the way you deal with a five-year-old is very different from how you're going to deal with a 13-year-old or a 16-year-old and and so it should be but it was really unpicking the research the thinking the approaches the um the ways of working that are unique to primary and really exemplifying those because I don't think anybody had necessarily done that before no, they absolutely haven't, um, and not not that I've seen. So in terms of the content of the book, we're going to get in and look at the first few chapters, Emma, because we always try and make sure that people want more, don't we? So we're not going to go through the whole book, but we're going to get into the first chapter, which is a curriculum of practice. Yeah. So the first question I'm going to ask you a little bit about is, how do you go about tying up you know, your curriculum design with your teaching and learning strategy and policy? Oh, that's an interesting one. So um, very often in a school, somebody will write the curriculum, and then somebody else will write the teaching and learning strategy. And that to me is madness because your curriculum needs to be designed in such a way that it can be enacted in the way that you want teaching and learning to happen. And what happens in a lot of schools is somebody or maybe a small team is squirreled away, squirreled away writing the content. And then somebody else is like the TNL champion and is talking about all the kind of research that underpins great teaching and learning. And then the two um, instead of having a neat dovetail, kind of co can collide, really. So when we're looking at curriculum design in primary, it's really thinking about what we want that primary teaching and learning offer to be. Uh, one of the big debates, first of all, is do you do single subject teaching or do you do linked or connected teaching? Topic gets a bad rap in primary. The, the phrase topic implies curriculum soup. Like just everything's just thrown in, stirred around and it becomes you can't separate out the individual bits. So in terms of tying it in with the teaching and learning policy, I think the first thing that you need to do with your curriculum is understand each individual subject as a, as a teacher or a curriculum lead. And I've done a lot of work in the book and a lot of work with schools on on really kind of distilling what each individual subject is at primary, because we teach upwards of 12 subjects and to get to grips with the kind of the fingerprint of each subject or the fidelity of each subject to its individual discipline it's really hard so uh, to if you're going to teach a subject well 
in your teaching learning, you need to understand what it is. So there's a lot in there that I talk about um, creating the, the individual fingerprint of a subject. So getting your staff to understand what do we mean by science? How is what makes science? What how is it similar to or different from maths? How is it similar to or different from design technology? You know, how is art similar to design? How is or, but different from design? So defining those and getting those really set in staff's understanding because there's the purpose names in the national curriculum for each subject, but they're really wordy, really long, um, a bit a little bit meaningless. So I would say to design your curriculum, first of all, define your subjects. Once you've defined your subjects and what you're trying to achieve, you can then design the teaching and learning to serve those. But the big thing in primary for me is that primary is is kind of an Aristotle model in that primary curriculum itself is greater than the sum of its individual subject parts. What we want to create for children in the primary curriculum is more than just being good at science, just being good at maths, just being good at geography. So it's thinking more broadly about your the, sorry, thinking more broadly than your individual subject disciplines and actually thinking about what you want your curriculum to achieve for children by the time they leave the end of your phase. So what does a year six's experience look like? What, what behaviours, attitudes, skills, what kind of knowledge do you want them to have? What experiences would you want them to have? How do you want them to use technology? How do you want them to st- sustain their learning? So really defining that for your curriculum. So there's the individual subject curriculum design aspect. Then there's the more global curriculum offer for primary that you want to design as well. And then you start to think about, okay, what does teaching and learning look like when you're five? What does teaching and learning look like when you're eight? What does it look like when you're 11? Um, And pulling in all of those kind of child development aspects as well, because you can't have a blanket teaching and learning policy that serves a five-year-old as well as it does an 11-year-old. It's completely different. So it's a... It's much more nuanced, I think, than secondary in that sense. And and once you start unpicking it, and I'm working with an all-through school at the moment, um, working a lot with their secondary department on understanding the primary curriculum, and it's kind of blown their minds a little bit, as in, wow, it's a lot bigger than we thought it was (laughs) in terms of content and also in terms of what you were actually trying to achieve within primary as well. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, for the for the reader that's obviously looking at the book, how do they go about getting that kind of clear understanding of the, the core knowledge for each each subject and, you know, each year group as well? It's interesting because there's much more freedom in the primary curriculum than there is in the secondary curriculum because you're bound in secondary by set text and literacy or an exam syllabus, which depending on which, you know, examiner, exam board you're going with. In primary, it's so much more open. You know, we, to, to all intents and purposes, we can stick our head out the window and go, of everything that's happened in the history of the universe, what shall we teach the children? You know, there are there are guidance, guidance within the national curriculum of things we've got to cover, but there's no set order necessarily. There is for some of the subjects, but not all of them. Um, and so when you're deciding what you're going to teach, it's very much a personal school decision a lot of the time. So it again comes back to kind of understanding your demographic, understanding what you want your global curriculum offer to be, making sure that what you do pick has fidelity to the individual um, subject disciplines. So there's a lot of work that needs to go on at the beginning about defining outcomes. So what do we want the outcomes for science to be, maths to be, English to be, whatever geography to be, and what do we want the child to be? And then you kind of reverse engineer it and say, okay, well, how do we get the information into the curriculum 
that will enable them to be able to do that. And and it's also working with secondaries to say, what do you need? You know, when we when we finish with the children in year six, what would be really helpful for them to have secured as well? Because there's um there's an awful lot of rubbish in the primary curriculum in terms of stuff that doesn't really need to be there that isn't particularly important. Um, so it's hard to say what should be in it and what shouldn't be in it because children, individual schools, sorry, have got so much more freedom with what they're going to teach uh, than in secondary. So that brings you back to understanding what your subjects are and what the core aspects of each subject are and then build your curriculum around that depending on what what it is you're going to teach the children. Yeah, and I like that. That kind of goes into chapter two, doesn't it, about your streamlined curriculum? Yeah. And a sentence and a, and a bit that you put at the end of that chapter is, you know, do all of your units earn their place on the curriculum? Can you articulate exactly why they are there? And is that something that you suggest that phase leads oh, or have a, have a really good conversation around yeah. why is that unit there? Yeah, and why is that not, why is that particular lesson there? I mean, and what, the way that I describe it on my training is that there's so much rubbish in the primary curriculum. If you do three units per term for each subject, and then you multiply that out by three terms, and then you multiply that out by um, 12 subjects over six years, so you're not even including foundation stage, that's 648 units of work, which is insane to try and uh, get a child to remember all the content and all the associated learning with that. Um, so it's it's going back to what's important. And the way I explain it on my training is going to do your big shop. And if you come back from your big shop at the end of the week and you've forgotten bread, milk and eggs, you're a bit stuffed. If you come back from your big shop and you've forgotten a pomegranate, some feta cheese and some face cream, you have a bit of dry skin around your eyes, but it's not a disaster. So it's, it's going through your curriculum and thinking, right, where's the bread, milk and eggs? Where's the stuff that if the children don't secure this, they're going to find the next year or the next year's compl- virtually impossible. They have to get this right. And then putting that at the forefront of your teaching. So making sure that you don't have units on, and the, the example I think I give is when we teach poems of different forms in year two, where we teach haikus and calligrams and what have you. And you think, well, that's all very well and good, very interesting, but the kids can't write in a full sentence yet. So let's do calligrams and haikus, but a light touch, and let's really focus on the bread, milk and eggs of getting this done. Because nowhere in the national curriculum for primary does it actually have a triage or a hierarchy of objectives. So everybody thinks, you know, well, not everybody, but lots of people are under the misapprehension that actually all of those are created equal and they're not. Some are bread, milk and eggs, some are pomegranates, feta cheese and face cream. And it's knowing which of those objectives that you're teaching within your units are the important ones. And then going back to your units and going, why is that in there? Is that a hangover for when we used to do national QCA units? Or is this because Mr. Wilson, who used to teach here seven years ago, was really good at woodwork, and that's why there's that woodwork unit in DT. Um, because things just happen in the primary curriculum, and then they, they become embedded and ingrained, and then nobody really knows why they're there. So it's going back and with fresh eyes thinking, do we need to do this? Why is this in there? Um, is it working? Is it helpful? And does it help to secure the things that, that the children need? And if the answer is no, get rid of it and, and refresh. Absolutely. And just for the listeners, um, I would abandon the eggs in favour of the face cream. Uh, I absolutely cannot do 
without the face cream. So we need to keep that in. <laughs> uh, well, that's your individual context, Phil. That's absolutely <laughs> right. It certainly is. And that's why this is an audio podcast. Uh, there we go. Okay, so I mean, I might misquote this, Emma, because I do that a lot. But when you're talking about lots of different lessons, lots of different topics are on there that might not necessarily be useful. Is it that kind of curriculum, that mile wide and inch thick quote that I'm going to miss miss um, attribute to Mary Myatt or somebody like that? I don't know. And then, how do you talk about in the book about supporting that development of mastery? Does that necessitate the removal of some of those superfluous topics yeah. that you're talking about, the feta cheese? Yeah, there is so much in the primary curriculum that does not need to be in there, or you could do as a very light touch and just leave it. It's And it's organising your curriculum design in such a way that when you've mapped out your units that you actually say, this is core knowledge that and skill that they've got to secure. This in the unit is some additional things, which is which is specific to this unit, but if they don't get it, it doesn't matter. So, for example, if you're doing a, a unit of work on the Roman Empire, you would want, without a shadow of a doubt, all children to understand what we mean by empire, um, where Rome is, roughly when the Roman Empire was, um, and the uh, what an invader is and what a settler is. So you, you'd want to know that. The additional stuff that you're also looking at within the unit on Romans is... You know, what animals did gladiators fight in the Colosseum? What was the name of the formations that the Roman army marched in? You know, what was oh, what was an example of um, a, a food stuff that they brought to Britain? You know, all interesting stuff that adds breadth and depth, but isn't necessary. But what we do as teachers in primary is we get that unit of work, we see all the stuff we've got to cover, and we try and secure it all and end up securing nothing. So in your curriculum design, whether you're the history lead or the overall curriculum lead, is to say for this unit, this is the important stuff, we will cover this other stuff, but they've got to get this. And if they don't get it, they can't move on. Um, So it's making sure you've had those conversations as well, not just what you're going to cover, but what's the important bits to secure? So you've not got this curriculum of coverage. You've actually got this really developmental progression model with additional information to explore and enhance. But actually, that core curriculum is really well defined. Right. This is really, really good because not only was the book helped me, but this conversation is bringing it back to me. So I said at the beginning that I don't have a great deal of experience and I don't. However, I have had two children that have gone through and are currently going through. So all those topics and things that you've just listed, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that. I've done Romans. You know, my daughter's in year four. So I kind of I recognize this from the weekly homework session um, that we do. So, yeah. This might be wrong, but this time of year, teachers are looking at moving around classes, and I see that a lot, and I know that my daughter's class, for example, um, I get a different teacher next year. So, you know, in some schools, there is movement around Key Stage 1, Key Stage 2, and even EYFS, isn't there? So in terms of communicating that curriculum and making sure it doesn't just rely on that one teacher that's good at teaching woodwork, for example, how do you go about sharing, communicating, securing that curriculum development to make sure that all teachers are working within that? It's a really interesting one because I was having this conversation with some secondary colleagues the other day and I was I pointed out the fact that actually for each individual subject in primary, we only have a twelfth of the development time that you have in secondary. So everybody in every phase has their generic staff meetings, you know, you have your safeguarding meeting, you have your timetabling meeting, whatever. Um, but then all of your other CPD, a lot of the time will be linked directly to your individual subject or your department. Um, in primary, because 
we don't have departments you know we don't everything has to be shared out between 12 subjects so the actual available development time for individual subjects in primary is minuscule in terms of teacher cpd tends to be dominated by the twin beer moths of um uh, literacy and maths quite rightly um but it does mean that very often primary teachers will need more direction in what needs to be taught and what has to be taught and what, and what the progression model is because they're not completely immersed in it like a single subject teacher at secondary would um, and they don't necessarily have the overview of the progression model like a secondary teacher would because if you're teaching science in secondary and you're teaching to, to year seven eight nine ten and eleven you've got a really good understanding of how that subject builds as the children move through the school if you're a single for if you're a single year group teacher teaching 12 subjects in primary that's that's a difficult more difficult thing to get a handle on so when you're designing your curriculum in primary it's designing your documents and your formats and your supporting materials in such a way that that's absolutely crystal clear so they do need to be um scaffolded in such a way that it, it literally says year one core knowledge additional unit knowledge year two core knowledge additional unit knowledge vocabulary key texts to cover it needs to be mapped out really really clearly not to jump through an Ofsted hoop but just so that if you work in year three you can look back at what year two and year one have done and it's there and it's mapped out and you can look forward to year four and year five and you can see what what's there one of the great beauties though of primary is that you do move year groups it's brilliant when you it's brilliant to stay but it's also brilliant to move because it gives you that overview of how children develop within the curriculum and and it's great to become the expert year five teacher or the expert year two teacher. But it's really beneficial in terms of understanding the primary journey to teach in multiple um, year groups. But that does need supporting by really well constructed materials to help you understand how the curriculum builds in your school. Great stuff. Thank you. Right. So in terms of assessment and building that into the streamlined curriculum, how important is that? And how do you go about building it? And again, I know that's going to be different for different phases. Yeah, it's it's really different. And and we have a there's a real tension in primary in foundation subject assessment in how reliable it is, how accurate it is, how useful it is. So we assess a lot in literacy and maths, both kind of statutory testing, um uh pro end of unit work, ongoing you know, assessment throughout the year, because that's our that that's the pillars of our curriculum is getting children to be numerate and literate. The assessment of foundation subjects is is not as great, partly because, like I mentioned earlier, you, one school could teach Victorians in year three, another one could teach it in year six. So you can't even moderate it really well because if you're comparing the work of a year three with a year six, it's really hard. Um, and also, so your school down the road may not be doing any units at the same same as yours you know so it's really hard to get a benchmark of what great looks like for your for your subjects and your curriculum and your particular sequencing and that goes back to using the curriculum itself as a progression model and actually saying well what did we say we wanted to achieve have we achieved it and then that core knowledge and skills progression model that you built is how often do we go back to that how do we check that children haven't forgotten it between year three and year four? How do we build that in? And using everything we know about cognitive science to say, well, it's not good enough to do a six-week unit on um, the Great Fire of London. 
do a test at the end on the Great Fire of London, leave it there and never revisit it ever again. Because we know the children are going to forget it. We, we know it's going to disappear unless it's retrieved regularly. Um, so it's looking at your teaching and learning policy again, coming back to your core curriculum and saying, OK, well, how do we build in regular retrieval, regular opportunities to revisit? How do we you know, bring this back into the consciousness? So it's moving away from really an assessment, the traditional end of unit test, because it doesn't really tell you anything. And that, case in point, I was talking to my eldest who's in year six and her little sister is doing my middle one is doing. Um, a topic that my eldest did in the same year group and I was just asking the little one to tell me what she remembered about what she'd done recently and she got loads of facts and she was really knowledgeable and you'd have gone oh that's brilliant and I remembered her elder sister being similar at the same time asked her elder sister all about it she went, Vikings and ships uh the houses had a hole in the top because of smoke um I've I think it was AD, I'm not sure. And you're thinking, you got, I know in your report, it said you'd really understood that topic. Well, you might have understood it at the time, but you've forgotten it. So it's it's moving away from a traditional end of unit test in primary and actually thinking about go back to the curriculum, use that as a progression model, constantly monitor and revisit and going back to those core things you said for each subject and building that in into regular retrieval and review. Um, and then doing lots of moderation across school, across schools in similar settings, your own networks, and just making sure that you're kind of on the right page in terms of pitch and expectations as well. But foundation subject assessment in primary is really, really hard because a lot of the time you're comparing apples and oranges. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the streamlines, we've talked about how you can make sure that each subject has earned its place in the curriculum. We've talked about, you know, having that kind of shared understanding, marrying up your teaching and learning policy with your curriculum development. But how important is it to keep kind of the, the window open for innovation or something <laughs> new in terms of development? Because, you know, you might get a teacher who comes in who's got a particular strength in a particular area. You know, there might be a, a change in the context of the school or the cohort of students that are, sorry, pupils that are coming to the school. So how important it is to keep that kind of option oh. open and not close the curriculum off? Always. And I talk a lot in the book about wriggle room, that all of our curriculums are so massively overstuffed and there's no wriggle room. And I'm working with a school at the moment where we've deliberately built in one lesson a week that's not got anything timetabled in it, deliberately in the primary curriculum, because we want to be responsive to either things that are going on in the news or um, a unit that's not going particularly well in another subject that needs some extracurricular time or it might be a subject that's absolutely flying and you want to explore it in some more depth and respond to what the children need um, so the first thing if you're going to innovate and develop you need to have a curriculum that's got wriggle room in it and it's got space in it to, to do that sort of thing um, and it's it's really easy if you're a subject leader to kind of monitor and evaluate your curriculum in terms of alignment how does it align with our policy, what we said we were going to do? Um, how does it align with our, you know, our carefully crafted progression model? And you can lose sight of the need to kind of stick your head above the, above the parapet and go, what's going brilliantly? Where's the bright spots? Who's absolutely smashing this? And if they are, how can I take what they're doing and, and get that kind of across the school? How can we learn from this? And also giving people the opportunity to say this part of the curriculum isn't working. You know, 
it's really dull. The children hate it. The activities that we plan for them to do to support the learning are awful. We can't get through it. So it's as important to spot bright spots and innovation as it is to kind of actually really say this doesn't work we need to go back to the drawing board so it's providing that wriggle room in in the curriculum itself in your curriculum allocations your time allocations but then providing opportunities for people to shine and also for people to go now nah, this does not work we need to, <laughs> we need to completely rewrite this it was great in it was great in theory in practice not so much so it's looking at your your timing allocations um, as well because we over allocate in primary all the time we think we're going to get through loads more and then it's comic relief day and sports day and the harvest festival and parents open morning and all of a sudden we haven't got 38 hours to teach it we've got 32 <laughs> and then we wonder why we can't get through it oh goodness yes and especially at this time of the year yeah. definitely there's all sorts going on isn't there For excellent right well, let's let's get into some more words that I don't necessarily understand or that I feel like I should. So tell the listener and tell me a little bit about the interconnected curriculum, which I do understand. But tell me about fully interconnected, partly interconnected or single subject. Okay. How do you know so this practices? was this is a nice little link to your final guest, because this is actually born of a conversation I had with Sam Strickland a few years ago. Um, I was trying to... He, came to talk to me about um, curriculum for his school and I was trying to explain what primary was like. Um, and I kept using the word topic. He's like, no, we don't do topic teaching. Absolutely not. No, topics, don't like that. And I knew what I was trying to say, that it wasn't topic, it was um, interconnected, but I hadn't, got, I hadn't got the right word. So in the end, I explained what I meant. And he went, well, that's not topic. He said, that's interconnection and that's where the interconnected curriculum came from so the principles of it and the structure of it was what I'd done for years but the actual phrase interconnection I have to owe to Sam because he was the one who pressed me on it to come up with the actual phrasing of it a long long time ago um but what it basically is is in secondary you teach individual subjects so you have your maths lesson you come out of the maths room you go to your art room you come out you get your PE lesson whatever um, and because you're taught by different teachers in different rooms, different ages, um, there is no joined up thinking necessarily between what goes on in the math lesson connected to what goes on in the art lesson connected to what goes on in the history room. In primary, we're a very different setup. You have the same children all day in the same space. So there's the opportunity there to link the learning from one subject to the learning in another subject. Now, that's not about thinking, oh, I'm going to do a topic on potions. I'm going to do a little bit of science on potions. That's categorically not it. What I'm saying about the interconnected curriculum is that sometimes when you teach a topic or when you teach an, a unit of work, it's augmented by teaching another subject alongside it. So the, the connection between the two subjects actually augments the, the success of, of them. And the example that I give in the book is when you teach Victorians. So if you're teaching Victorians in history, it's really good to teach that alongside microorganisms and science. Because when you're talking about a population moving from a rural to an urban setting and there's overcrowding and there's problems with sanitation, there's a cholera outbreak, that's a brilliant link to, the, to microorganisms, to understanding the spread of disease. Um, if you link that again to literacy, where you're looking at a book like um, uh, Oliver Twist or Burley Doherty's Street Child, which is set in sort of Victorian London, which again gives context and richness to, to the things that you're studying, 
All of those augment each other. Understanding the science and the history that underpin Oliver Twist or Street Child actively um, encourages children or improves their comprehension of the story. By If you taught microorganisms separately from um, Victorians, you wouldn't necessarily understand why the cholera outbreak happened or what it was. So by deliberately placing some subjects together, you can augment the learning in them, which is very different from topic, which is like, oh, that sounds like it goes together. That's all to do with water. That's got a bit of water. Let's do a bit about water. It's very different. Um, and the other, the other consideration is if you know anything about how we develop schema around things, you'll know that, they, that the more connections you make, the more likely it is that things are, are to be remembered. So if you can teach a curriculum across a day or a week where there are multiple points of connection or revisiting or review, not only in the subject session that you teach, but across multiple other sessions where you can kind of flip back and do that, you know you're going to be cementing um, that knowledge and that skill and that learning in a much more connected way and we're so uniquely placed in primary to be able to do that but because of the way topic has been organized before it's got a really bad rap but I think inter an interconnected curriculum isn't topic at all neither is it standalone subject teaching because with the best will in the world not everything augments each other so the way that you organise the, the units that go together do mean that some subjects will stand alone. So, you know, you're not going to try and wedge your PE into that Victorian's unit. It's going to be a very tenuous link or you're not going to not maybe going to put your um, art in there. Although, although you might, might be looking at Victorian art. Um, so it's recognising that sometimes you will deliberately connect subjects and teach them together and some subjects will stand alone. But that, that interconnection is flexible. It's like a flexible connectivity that some terms, the history, the art and the literacy might fit together. Some terms, the science, the DT and the geography might fit together. And it's recognising when and where to make those connections, which again is very different from topic and very different from sub individual subject teaching. And it goes back to that idea of academic fidelity. So understanding the unique fingerprint of each subject. So when you are teaching the history part, you're actually teaching history, you're not teaching curriculum soup, but that you are deliberately making connections and referencing things that you've done in other subjects. Um, if you try and teach individual subjects in primary, personally, I think you're on a hiding to nowhere because I don't know how many people who are advocates of that who have actually run a class of 30 little five-year-olds and have tried to every hour go, now we're doing art, now let's wash up and clear up, and now we're doing PA, get changed, do this, and now we're doing this. It just doesn't work. It's The, the logistics of it are nuts. So um, I know Ofsted are very keen on single subject teaching, but I think the interconnected curriculum is a beautiful halfway house, underpinned by everything that we know about um, cognitive science, about how young children learn, which, which takes a much more common sense approach than... It's not homogenous woolly topic, neither is it an unworkable um, single subject model. It's actually a very deliberate approach to sequencing. That, that makes a lot of sense, Emma, in terms of one of the criticisms that, you know, students often offer in, in science is, you know, why do I need to know this? Why is this important? You know, I'm not going to need to know this again. And without, like you said, you're respecting the academic fidelity, if that's the phrase you used, of mm -hmm. science, but also of history. But a cholera is a good example. So you can learn some in-depth microbiology around, you know, 
how pathogens spread, for example. But then you can equally link that back to something that you're learning about history, but you're not just throwing it all together as one topic-based project. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You're interconnected. And that might help the enjoyment of, of both subjects and also the progress in both subjects as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, listener, we're just halfway through um, our interview with Emma Turner. So we're on Simplicitous, the Interconnected Primary Curriculum and Effective Subject Leadership. It is a John Cat book. It's available widely everywhere. And what reviews, Emma Turner, what reviews we have for this book? <laughs> Superb. So we're on five stars, five stars across the board. And I feel like you know that, that that's not easy to achieve, is it? It's not easy to achieve because there's always somebody, isn't there? Oh, um, and I guarantee there'll be one queuing up for the Nailers Natter book. Um <laughs> probably There's my family somebody. to be honest it's always somebody who wants to be a negative nancy in a world not, of critics being encourager phil that's what i was well, gonna say but not so far there's nobody is there so it's it's absolutely brilliant so we'll talk about where it's available later on but let's get further into that interconnected curriculum and one thing i was interested in and i didn't necessarily know this so you know how much importance do you attach to things like timetabling within the primary sector and using timings and having that flexibility that you talked about a minute. So how, how important is that oh, to your chosen approach? I'm working with a school at the moment on their curriculum allocations. And it's it's a complete nonsense in primary, our curriculum allocations, because we have five days, 12 subjects, about five hours teaching time a day if you take out lunch and play times and bits and bobs. So you can end up with some subjects having very little curriculum time unless you have a little bit of a tinker with your timetable. So the first thing to do is to point out to people that maximum for foundation subjects, we've got 38 hours a week, uh, 38 hours a year to teach each individual subject, which is only really just over a week's worth of teaching. And so it's, I don't mean not being ambitious with your curriculum, I mean being really realistic with what you can get through in 38 hours. And it's not 38 hours really, which is we've touched on before. It normally equates to about 32 or 35 hours by the time you've taken other bits and pieces out that eat into the eat into the curriculum time, which are valid things that you would do in primary, but everything from the photographer to sports day to Santa coming to visit, you know, it's all, all those sorts of things. So you've probably got between about 32 and 35 hours. So first of all, set your curriculum budget and then start to think about, okay, we touched on that as well. When do you teach this? When does it make most sense to teach athletics? Well, it's not going to be in November. Um, when does it make, when does it uh, make most sense to teach the unit on how plants grow? It's not going to be in February necessarily. It's going to be in, in uh, later on in that term. So there's that kind of placing of those. Um, and then it's then it's thinking about, do I want to do every subject every week or do I want to block? And what we talk about when we do blocking is that for some subjects, you don't teach them for a half term. So it's normally art and design that are twinned together and, and, and history, geography. So you might do the first half term, geography, second half term, history, and you might repeat that all three terms because you literally can't get through all 12 subjects in a week but you'd block them but what you would have was three touch points what some primary schools make the mistake of is saying right we're going to have a dt week we're going to do a week of it all we're going to do is dt problem with that is it doesn't align with what we know about how we learn about opportunities to revisit to retrieve to um to forget and then remember um it's so some some schools will block an entire week, but 
you're on a little bit of a sticky wicket there, a bit of dodgy ground, because actually that doesn't align with what we know about how we learn. Some people, are, I was working with a school the other day, I was looking at their curriculum documents, and they had no geography for a year and a half. I was like, again, but they were like, yeah, but in this year group, we do loads of geography all year. I'm like, well, again, that doesn't align with what we know about how we learn. So it's being realistic about how much time you've got to teach it. And then if you're going to use a blocking model, align the blocking model with what we know about how we learn. So have three touch points throughout the academic year um, and make sure that when the children aren't doing that particular subject, that term, that you're still doing like morning work that might be a retrieval practice quiz on stuff that they've done previously. Um, especially if it's, if it's things linked to your sort of core progression model, uh, curriculum progression model and mapping, you do that in the terms that they don't actually get taught it. But there are so many, um, so many different timetabling factors in different schools. Some people have an afternoon playtime, some people don't have an afternoon playtime, some people have an extended lunch, some people don't. So it's it, understanding your context, but realising that you can't pour a pint into a thimble and trying to do 12 subjects every week Week in, week out, all of your teachers are going to be crying and rocking in the art cupboard by the, by the end of term one, if that's the way you go. So it's been really realistic about your timetabling. But it's slightly easier because we all teach everything in primary. You haven't got to timetable specialist teachers. There are more specialist teachers in primary now than there were. So we have specialist sports coaches, music teachers, languages. But ultimately, we've got freedom to teach what we want when we want. And, and I think that's the beauty of primary as well, um, in that some mornings I'd come in and think, they don't like that, look like they're in the mood to start with literacy today. This lot are not ready for what I had planned. So let's start with the maths I've got and then we'll do literacy in a little while. Um, so it's being flexible and recognising that you've got the luxury of reacting to the children in the class as well. You know, if you're the science teacher in secondary, you've not got much choice other than to teach your science lesson. Whereas we could look at a class and think, this is not the right time for you to do this. I need to rejig my day. So there's, there's a responsiveness to the timetabling that isn't necessarily there uh, in secondary. No, brilliant. Thank you. So let's get on to the chapter about the global curriculum. And for people that are not aware, what do you mean by the global curriculum? Oh, the global curriculum is that, as I mentioned it earlier about Aristotle, it's that it's the primary school experience is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, it's not just about getting children to be proficient in subjects. The primary offer is a global curriculum. There are so, if I asked you to list 10 rites of passage of primary school, I bet you could list them. Everything from you know the Christmas performance to the Leavers performance to cycling proficiency and there's all sorts of things, swimming lessons. There's, there's all sorts of things that we do. The talent show tomorrow afternoon, yes. All of those kind of things. Yeah, we've had it all this week. We've had yeah. everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've got a very red face, which you can't see, because I've done uh, two and a half hours of my own kids' sports day on the field today in 26 degrees. It was a bit... Yeah, we had sports day yesterday. I, I wasn't able to get there, and uh, unfortunately, she, she lost on a photo finish, um, oh. which was rather disappointing. But never mind. It was all, it's all good fun. But yeah, absolutely. I, I can, and I so can, yeah. the global curriculum is, is the big offer. You know, what do you want? What do you really want the children to have experienced? To uh, what to feel about education? To to experience as their first kind of introduction to formal education? Because 
this is the thing that a lot of people forget is that we're dealing with very young children and this is their first interaction with formal education. And do we really want them to just be sat down all day listening, retrieval practice, doing this? That's not what we want. And if you ask any parent what they want for their five-year-old or the seven-year-old or the nine-year-old, the bulk of them are going to say, I want them to have a really nice day. I want them to be enthused about their learning. I want them to be happy. I want them to make friends. I want them to really love going to school and love learning. And, and I think sometimes that sounds a bit woolly and it sounds a bit kind of Glastonbury and what have you. But it's true, you know, with for very young children, um, their time at primary school should be a unique preservation of the unique stage of childhood as well. They should be playful. They should be enjoying themselves. They shouldn't be sat down all day writing an exercise book. So it should be rich. It should be vibrant. It should be absolutely bursting at the seams with interest, love, joy and richness. Um, And so when we talk about the the global offer, it's recognising that everything we offer in primary school is the curriculum. Every interaction with a pair, uh, with a teacher, with support staff, every playtime they have, every assembly they go to, every trip they go on, um, every sort of time they get a chance to work in a group with their friends, that's all the curricula. Um, and it's thinking beyond the academic as well. Because when children come to us in primary, they're novice in everything. Some of them, some of them uh, it could be the first time they've ever been away from their primary caregiver. If they've not had a nursery or preschool experience, this will be the first time they've ever been left for want of a better word. And so we need to get children proficient in not just how to read and how to write, but how to function in happy, harmonious groups, how to look after themselves, how to be independent, um, how to get changed for PE, how to line up, how to sit on the carpet, you know, how not to kick people, you know, how to resolve a conflict, how to make friends. All of this is the global primary offer. And we also need to be mindful that for some children who come to us, this is the only offer they will get of a chance to hear different viewpoints, think in different ways, experience or learn about different parts of the world or people and places that are similar to or different from themselves. So it's recognising that our curriculum needs to be rooted in what the children need and uh, and in order to develop but also as a kind of gateway to opening up the rest of the world as well and actually saying look what's out there lots of children might have very rich very well supported very um, interesting uh, sorry interested adults at home who want them to experience fantastic things um, other children not so um, and so when they come to, to school it's recognizing that our curriculum and our offer is sometimes the only other experience they have in their lives so what do we want them to experience in that place and and I think I say in the book and and Claire Seeley says this in her book as well for some children primary young children primary school is the first time they will ever have been treated with kindness or respect so it's recognizing the huge influence that a really positive primary education can have in terms of opening up children's eyes not only to academic possibility but actually to the kind of human element uh, as well of our of our curriculum so we need to think really carefully about that and I, I think that in the rush to promote academic fidelity and you know progression in skills and knowledge we forget that we're dealing with very young children who are novices in the world and we need to 
support them, guide them, infuse them, make them fall in love with education. And I, the, the phrase I use is we need to make our we need to make our schools academically seductive for them. <laughs> That, that could be the next book, couldn't it? Academically seductive. Academic seduction. There they are. I think the people will be, be queuing up to buy that, won't they? Academic <laughs> Sounds like a really book. bad residential. <laughs> <laughs> now available on Eventbrite, listening. Yeah. Is, uh... Academic seduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, I don't know where to go from that. Let's move on. We'll move on quickly. But in terms of that, about the primary school, it's such a true thing because if you think during the pandemic, and those students that miss that. So I'm the, the parent of a year eight student mm-hmm. and uh, a current year four. So, I mean, the year eight student missed a lot of the rites of passage that you would get through mm-hmm. primary school. You know, I think of the number of times I went to, you know, the end of year concert, the end of year celebration assembly, and it was year six. It was always focused on year six because it was their time to do that. And I thought, you know, next year it's going to be his turn. And then they missed that. And you can see what impact that's had as they've gone to secondary school. You know, we've, yeah. we've had to kind of build in some of those experiences that perhaps they missed. Um, at those times and you've seen there has been an effect on students in in year eight and kind of below about that so it's absolutely true and I was trying to think of the rites of passage I was kind of reminiscing as you were talking there I was thinking yeah the greatest days of your life at primary school weren't yeah. they even even in the 80s listener yeah. still and, were you know and nobody talks about it everybody's so busy trying to ram the curriculum into into some kind of huge academic beast that you actually forget these kids are six you're seven, you know, they just want to have a nice time sometimes and make a model out of a bo- cardboard box and go and show it to their adult at the end of the day. You know, we, we have to kind of, yes, have high aspirations and, and teach really well, but we also have to recognise that we are dealing with very young children who need to play, who need to be playful, who need to move, who've got a biological impulse to, to be active and to move and to structure our offer in such a way that it supports their development challenges them intellectually but ultimately preserves that wonderful period of their lives when they're just little because they're never going to get that again as soon as they go on off into secondary it's slant and star and god knows what else <laughs> oh no this this there's still some fun in there don't oh, you I know, but, it, yeah. but I, I, you're dealing with a very big organization um with with children who aren't necessarily as keen on coming to school as they were when they were six and who, you know, the potential for quite a volatile classroom is, is much greater than in primary. So you have to have those systems that don't necessarily facilitate playfulness. And I get it. And, I, and you know, that's why I say secondary should be different from primary. But it's um, if it should be different, then primary should, should fight for, for our kind of unique part of it, which is the, the childhood part of it. Definitely. And then on a practical basis, I mean, I have spent some time in primary school and been around and looked at various kind of classroom setups. So you talk a little bit about that in the book, don't you, about, you know, the learning environment. So, I mean, I know there's not one particular best because every classroom is different. So year six looks very different, doesn't it? To yeah. year one. But just tell us about how the importance of the classroom environment. Oh, the, the most, most primary classrooms are shoddy, as in they're just falling down. They're too small, they're rammed full of too much furniture, there's never enough sockets, the ventilation's dreadful, the lighting's awful. Um, they're just, the, it's like if you try to design the worst place to teach a lot of small children, most primary classes, I'm not mean, I don't mean the environment the teacher creates, but actually the infrastructure of the buildings themselves, is, it's, it's really, really challenging. 
Uh, I just think of my last classroom that I had. It was in a Victorian classroom with windows that started at six foot high and went up to the thing, but that were jammed open. So it used to snow inside whilst I was teaching. Um, and they had a big Victorian fireplace in the corner that was taller than me, um, which the wind used to whistle down and, and water that used to trickle down the wall into the sockets, which was which was nice. So, yeah, primary schools are not often the ideal places to enact rich, vibrant curriculums. Um, and again, it's recognising that, that when we're designing a curriculum, it needs to be enacted in a primary school. And, and a lot of primary schools, they don't even have a playground or a field um, that that can be accessed. There's especially lots of small schools, very rural schools. The footprint of the site is minuscule and they don't have science labs or kilns or dance studios. or um, So it's being realistic about what can we provide in the space that we have with the facilities that we have immediately in our school and locally in our community and um, what can we actually provide because a lot of the time curriculums are written uh, or advice is put together for primary schools and it doesn't necessarily go beyond the confines of some of the very big sort of southeast or london primaries that are a very different um a very different setup to the majority of rural schools or small primary schools. Um, and so the messaging around primary curriculum, um, it can be really difficult to stomach sometimes because you're thinking, well, if I had a four form entry new build in London with access to amazing local museums and galleries and what have you, that would be marvellous. What I have got is I've got um, mixed age classes. I've got no playground. I've got... Um, you know no space locally you have to travel 40 miles to get to the nearest city to do anything and most well not most a huge proportion of the primary school of primary schools are taught in mixed age classes as well so you've got the environment itself which is not particularly great and then you're trying to teach multiple year groups in the same class as well um so when we think about curriculum design is actually looking at your classrooms and looking at your school and looking at your locality and thinking, what can we achieve? What do we need to reach out to the community for or, you know, um, other delivery partners for our local high school? How could we use what they can offer or those sorts of things? Because um, a lot of the advice for primaries around how they should teach and how they should structure the curriculum is written by people who've never actually had to teach in a, in a primary classroom and realise it's really hard. It absolutely is. I mean, like I said, I've been to visit quite a few recently and it, it, it really shocked me, Emma, to be honest, in terms of, you know, I've worked in new builds since about 2006 when the original school that I worked in amalgamated. Mm. So I've kind of missed any other school sites apart from, you know, going to parents evening and breaking yeah. small chairs um, when I sit on them, as I inevitably do. There's um, <laughs> a terrible parents evening that in year one when I broke the chair. Oh, anyway, <laughs> no, it wasn't good. But then, you know, the, the buildings are quite surprisingly, like I said, Victorian, really small. And, you know, I get that at home when it's like it's it's freezing or it's boiling. There is no yeah. in-between whatsoever, is there? So, you know, that's a really interesting point. Right, I'm just looking at the time. So we're getting up towards the hour. So I'm just going to have to leave the listener wanting more because they need to go out and buy the book, don't they? 
Okay, so it's our time for the shameless plug of the book again. So it is Simplicitous, the Interconnected Primary Curriculum and Effective Subject Leadership. And like I said, it's a John Cat book. So tell us, Emma, where are you going to be out and about speaking about this? I know you're doing a lot, aren't you, in terms of CPD for schools as well. Obviously, you're doing your podcast uh, with the guru, Tom Sherrington, on as well. So tell us what's what's coming up for Emma Turner in the rest oh, of the I've got all sorts of things. I'm doing um, conferences here, there and everywhere on curriculum. I'm doing um, one for the... Church of England, their national conference. I'm doing some training out in Vietnam. I'm doing some training in Liverpool. I'm working down in Camden in London, doing curriculum design development with a, a trust up in Sheffield. So there's there's all sorts of things. It's kind of like simplicitous on tour, basically, um, because there does seem to be a bit of a gap in the a gap in the support for for primary subject leaders as well. We haven't even touched on on subject leadership, but um, it's it's a different kettle of fish leading the subject in primary to elsewhere so a lot of my work is based around that and a lot of the, the speaking and the talks and things that I'm doing at the moment are all around primary subject leadership and primary subject development so basically if you if you if you throw a stone in any direction you probably hit something I'm doing at the moment which is great isn't it and that's testament to the work that you've done and the books that you've written <laughs> it is people don't just decide they want CPD they? they actually carefully think about what they need so it's credit to what you've done that it's, it's been received so, so well. And obviously, you know, the podcast continues as well, doesn't it? So you can get, have you got someone, some coming up? We've just, uh, just before this, I just finished recording with Adam Boxer. We've got, we've just done a list of next guests for the next series, which is really exciting. We've got some fantastic, fantastic people lined up for that one. Um, really Shall I be waiting for my invite? Uh, <laughs> is, is that say that i have some sway over this but you can imagine that i'm working with the company and the boss himself mr sherrington i have absolutely no sway <laughs> listen that was that was a grant shaps style answer there wasn't it of evasive <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna take that as a no that is not gonna be appearing on the fact. you on my suggestion list for no no i feel like i feel like i'm begging now no no no, no don't <laughs> I have put our mutual friend Sir John Jones on the on my list already. Oh yes, well I'll be I'll be tuning in. Right, just a little bit to finish off with. So just thank you, Emma, for everything that you've done for Nailers Natter over the years. You know, thank you for all the episodes that you've anchored for me. Thank you for the ones that you've co-hosted. Um, it's been a pleasure to work with you, and hopefully we will stay in touch. Won't we? Obviously, I'll still be a consumer yes. of all things Emma Turner, including the uh, the retreat that you've now um, arranged. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be signing up for that as well. That sounds very intriguing. So I'll be there, I'll be there for that oh, one. Funny. Can but I yeah. just say, can I just say, Phil, um, I don't know if anybody's actually said this to you, but I really want to say thank you for for everything you've done with Nailers Matter because it's it was my in into kind of into podcasts. It was the very first education podcast I ever listened to and it's remained my favourite throughout. And I don't think you realise what an impact you've had on the people who listen to your podcast on how grateful people are to come onto it and share their stories and their expertise. And you've, you've got such a brilliant, brilliant way with interviewing. It, it's such a, such a shame you're ending it, but I just wanted to say thank you for everything you've done because it's, I don't think you understand your reach is what I'm trying to say. And so on behalf of everybody who's benefited from listening to your, to your podcasts and who've, who's benefited from the book that's come off the back of the podcast just thank you because i know how much time and effort goes into these and it's very much appreciated so thank you well thank you for saying that that's very kind and i just feel like it's time to 
sail off into the sunset, isn't it? You know, you, if you do something for too long, it becomes a bit like, oh, well, they're, they're another nailers natter. So I just thought we've, we're proud of the, the canon that we've got, apart from the early ones, not that the content, just the sound quality was atrocious. <laughs> but we're, we're going to keep it all up there. So you know, I appreciate that. And like I said, I very much still be hanging around, but in a, in a different guise, in a different form. So much appreciated. Oh. Right, so thank you, Emma. Uh, th- thank you, listeners. And uh, last week, sorry, next week's will be the last one uh, with the Stricko Master. So we'll see you next week. Thank you, Phil. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. 